Firestorm does negotiate this tension between its values, our values, and kind of the capitalist market that we're attempting to operate in. I do believe that it's possible for libertarian, anti-capitalist folks to directly confront and and out-compete within the market. But I also think that the reality a lot of times is that operating under capitalism, it can really challenge us in terms of showing up and making the decisions that actually align with our goals and values as anarchists. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, visit our website at nonserviummedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word. And so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 29th episode of the show. For this installment, I'll be speaking with a couple of organizers from Southern Appalachia who are currently engaged in a collectively owned radical bookstore and community event space. Today, we plan to explore the challenges of operating a radical cooperative enterprise, the role that such a project has in the broader anarchist movement, and a lot more. Here's my interview with Liberty and Beck from Firestorm Books. Firestorm Books is a queer feminist collective that actively supports grassroots movements and has been developing a workplace based on cooperation, empowerment, and equity since 2008 on Cherokee Chalagi land, also known as Asheville, North Carolina. Liberty is a founding member of the Firestorm Collective who grew up in rural Appalachia. Beck is an import from the Midwest and has been the co-op's lead buyer since 2018. They're both anarchists without adjectives. Liberty and Beck, thank y'all so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So how are y'all? I think we're doing pretty good. It's kind of a cloudy overcast day here in Southern Appalachia, but the weather's been warming up and I think we've both just been really excited to feel like COVID winter is coming to an end. Excited to be talking to more people, maybe both in formats like this, but also in real life. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Non-Servium as a project started out in Austin and Asheville is seen by some as similar in spirit to places like Austin or Portland. What's the anarchist scene like there? Yeah, well, so neither of us are like super familiar with Austin or like the milieu in Austin or Portland, but in general... Yeah, Asheville's weirdly friendly and even maybe broadly sympathetic to anarchism and like other like things that were viewed as like quirky political stuff. Yeah, it first occurred to me that we were living in like a pretty interesting town when quite a few years ago there was kind of a small riot on May Day where a bunch of windows and cars got smashed up in downtown Asheville. And over the following like weeks, local newspapers ran these like anarchist scare articles that were you know, about how terrifying and like lawless the anarchists were or whatever. And it was like 
kind of like the first time it felt like the local media had ever like really acknowledged that there were anarchists in Asheville. But we were like pretty affronted by their like representation of anarchism. So we wrote op-eds. As Firestorm. As Firestorm, right, as a collective. Like kind of contesting the characterization of anarchism and presenting a different perspective without throwing anyone under the bus. At the time, it was like not even really clear if the people arrested were anarchists at all or like what was going on. But um, yeah, it was it was really cool just like walking around town. I remember like having people like slow down their cars and like yell out the window like, hey, like great article in the Citizen Times. People who I really didn't expect to be so friendly towards anarchism. But the reality is, is I think this is a town where there's enough anarchists that everybody has like a friend or someone they know or has like worked with someone who's an anarchist. So it's kind of like, it's a little harder to demonize like a group of people when like, you know, an anarchist babysits your kid or like makes your latte or whatever. I don't know. It, it seems like there people have some exposure to anarchism that is positive. I, I don't know how like the, the recent climate shift around anarchism as a boogeyman potentially complicates this, both for conservative and liberal folks. So it's possible that my theory that Asheville is somewhat uniquely friendly towards anarchism will have to be revised post-Trump administration. But for now, I'm sticking with a fairly optimistic view around our like local community's relationship to anarchism. That's amazing. That makes me almost want to move there. <laughs> well, it's a town with plenty of faults. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, what do y'all think of that tactic in general? You know, back in the day, some radicals experimented with you know, sort of um, all moving together in one geographical area and maybe even forming like a small community. What do y'all think about that tactic in general? And would, would Asheville be a good place for it? Yeah, I mean, the, the tactic itself is extremely appealing. And Asheville, in some ways, has like an outsized reputation for like the number of anarchists that are here and the like kind of more like well-known, like visible projects like Final Straw and the like former Asheville Global Report. And that's like both the upside and the downside. It can almost become its own ecosystem to the extent that like nobody's really incentivized to like reach outside of it because there's like enough of us that we can just do stuff for ourselves. Yeah, that's true. And interestingly, your question of like, would Asheville be a good candidate for that? I'm like, this is not a theoretical question because in fact, Asheville has previously been a candidate for it. So I mean, just on a super informal personal level, like, I mean, I moved to Asheville because there were highly visible, well-respected anarchist projects in Asheville. Beck mentioned the Asheville Global Report that was a weekly print newspaper that ran for years and and mailed all over the country, but was distributed for free. Also, Katua Earth First used to be one of the bigger, more active chapters of Earth First in the country. So I certainly moved to Asheville based on a belief that I was moving to a community that was already pretty stacked. Of, of course, many of those projects actually folded within a few years of my getting here, my first big disappointment. But you know, on, on the flip side, and somewhat hilariously, I, I just remembered that maybe five or six years ago, there was a project specifically to bring anarcho-capitalists to Asheville called the Blue Ridge Liberty Project. And so they actually, they moved quite a few people to Western North Carolina, specifically to kind of like build a, hilariously, they they basically had a commune. We always teased them about how they were like, they, had like an anarcho, they insisted it was just a house, but like, <laughs> it looked a lot like a commune. But it, eventually, as with, I think, most anarcho-capitalists, like people sort of chose sides and either became like ethno-nationalists or became critical of capitalism. So 
that group did splinter. But yeah, so this is a thing that has already been tried in Asheville, perhaps. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. Well, that makes me wonder how each of you got involved with radical politics. I mean, what's, what's each of your stories and you know, what corner of the political quadrum do you currently identify with most? So I guess like my political journey probably started as like a pretty young person, really like middle school age, being very interested in feminism and then kind of like animal liberation and then connecting those and ultimately like connecting them to anarchism. Beck has joked that we both started out as teenage edgelords, which is probably the best explanation of the start of our <laughs> political journeys. Uh, but Teenage edgelords, that sounds like a good band name, to be honest. It does, it does, yeah. But I have no musical ability. Uh, so I don't know. I think like I have, for most of my adult life, maintained like a vocal skepticism of like the capital left. But it's like also kind of hard to escape the reality that like socially and politically, there's not another like quadrant in terms of like the lower left quadrant that like I could possibly be fit into. But, you know, as, as I've maybe already kind of indicated with the story about the Blue Ridge Liberty Project, I'm like broadly kind of like friendly towards market approaches and open to bottom left unity where that can exist. Yeah, and I think it's possible Liberty was like a better edgelord than I was. Um, I was like a very awful, like I'm not like other girls major. I got like very into economics in high school. I understood myself as a libertarian for, for many years. And then sometimes I refer to it as like the great unfucking of 2009. Um, <laughs> I, I read uh, The New Jim Crow and Whipping Girl and then was like, oh, God, there's like other people in the world that I could care about. Um, and so that, that was like pretty formative. And then I guess my like, I, I like understand myself as an anarchist at this point. And that's probably, I think, like tracing that back to I read Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. And there was there was a chapter in there about degrowth. And I got really into that for a minute. And then that led me to book chin. And um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, so <laughs> I guess here we are in the lower left quadrant. <laughs> so what inspired the creation of Firestorm Books? Yeah, so I guess I'll field that one as the, the sole surviving member of the original collective. In she was there. In 2008. I was there. Since I'm the sole surviving member, I can represent it however I want. I guess that's the, <laughs> the danger, the authority of, of having actually lived through it. Yeah, so we, um, I and um, another founding member had had experience with a number of kind of like rad spaces, with basically info shop spaces. For me, that started with the Internationalist in Carborough, um, which sadly no longer exists. It was a, actually a, originally like a Marxist bookstore that had been sort of taken over and collectivized by anarchists um, at some point in the 90s. Really precious space. Then kind of in New York, both I and this other individual had experience with Blackout Books, which was a really cool space in a theater. And then in Baltimore, Black Planet Books eventually became Red Emma's. So each of these spaces, you know, offered a lot to the communities they were embedded in, but also to people who, you know, kind of came through those communities in whatever capacity. And I think we recognized the value in having an anchor space like that in a community, especially a community like Asheville, where gentrification is so kind of like intense that it very much felt like we could kind of lose a foothold in kind of like public space. So yeah, the specific desire to formalize as a cooperative 
kind of came secondary based on some experience with co-ops. Of course, Red Emma's transitioned from being a volunteer-run collective in Baltimore to being a cooperative at a time when I was actually living just outside of Baltimore. And then somewhat before that, I had had some experience visiting occupied factories in Argentina following the economic crash there and had been really impressed by kind of like what was going on in terms of self-management and occupation. And then the last thing I'll say that's like probably just me and not representative of the other incredible dozen people who opened Firestorm is that I was definitely reading a lot of Kevin Carson (laughs) in 2007 and 8. Kevin definitely had kind of an oversized role in my thinking, particularly, you know, obviously like studies in mutualist economy, but the kind of the framing of building the new world in the shell, the old, particularly like the idea that kind of anti-capitalist or anarchist enterprises might actually directly compete with and contest capitalist hegemony. I was kind of romanced by that for sure when we were starting in 2008 and maybe drew some inspiration there. So there are a lot of anarchist info shops around the world. What makes Firestorm Books so unique? Yeah, I mean, I think a big one is that we are situated both in the South and also in a town that is not sort of centered around like a university. Yeah, yeah. My experience is that most of the other radical spaces and bookstores in particular are university connected, not formally, but, you know, spatially. I I think other things kind of about the flavor of our bookstore, which we rarely refer to as an info shop, although certainly understand it as being like part of the info shop tradition, is we have a pretty big focus on kids' books and work specifically to be like a very family-friendly space. I, I kind of mean we have spaces actually set up for kids in addition to actually just having like picture books. I think people appreciate that. Interestingly, we realized a couple of years ago that kids' books are actually our best-selling category of like books. So I, I don't think there's too many other anarchist spaces that are, you know, organized as bookstores that have that level of engagement with like kids' literature. Yeah, you know, a few years ago before we shut down the cafe part, like running reports and seeing that even just like the two like shelves of children's books like tucked away in the back we're having like an outsized impact on sales. And so when new space opened up, we were like, let's give it to the children's area. So now there's like a whole, I mean, kind of like almost a quarter of the store that that's set aside for everything from, you know, board books to middle grade novels. And we're in a neighborhood that's very like family oriented. And I think also in like a milieu where there are quite a few people with kids, some of whom actually at this point are practically adults. So, yeah, so I I think that's also a response to kind of what our community looks like. This is maybe a throwback to the question about what's the vibe of Asheville's anarchist scene. Our friend Margaret has always joked that, and I think maybe this was more true 10 years ago, but remains somewhat true, that Asheville is the city where anarchists drop out to have kids eat meat. And drink beer. Um, (laughs) And I think that sort of still holds. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. All right. So why did y'all feel it necessary to have the collective centered around queer liberation and feminism? Yeah. So, you know, we didn't say this already, but Asheville is a town in which there's enough anarchists that we're not necessarily all in the same milieu. But the kind of like organized or disorganized anarchist space that we exist in, I think, is basically a queer community. 
you know, not not everyone who's queer in Asheville is an anarchist, but I think disproportionately anarchists understand themselves as like queer and trans folks in this town. And so I think that the identity of our space, again, is sort of a direct response to the like kind of needs and vision of our community. Uh, but there was a bit of a transition. I think we we didn't really market ourselves or understand ourselves as queer space until we closed in 2014 and reopened in a new location. And at that time, there was kind of like a re-examination of like what our collective culture was. And we sort of realized that we weren't talking about being like queer and trans folks, but that we all were, or, or certainly majority were. And so we kind of decided that that could take a more central role in how we represented ourselves to our community and like lean in on that. And I think that was a good decision. People, people definitely appreciate having spaces that are particularly welcoming for like queer and trans youth. Uh, I guess the other thing to say about that is that over time, I think while we've always individually understood ourselves as feminists, I think our collective culture has really benefited from kind of like uh, some feminist culture and particularly the kind of the, the intentional construction of collective culture that pushes back on the toxicity of both the way in which we choose to value work, the degree to which it is possible to show up as whole people, what we make space for. And I think that we're very much like benefiting from kind of like this long tradition of like feminist organizing. I think that notably a lot of those values became a lot easier to like actually live out in our work when we started paying ourselves an almost, almost reasonable wage. <laughs> um, and and our collective got a lot smaller and more intimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I do think that we, you know, we're a small team and we really show up kind of as family and make a lot of space for each other. But um, not in the like, we're all family here kind of way. Yeah. In the good way, not the creepy way. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Certainly, I think like the centering of care and empathy in our organizing is something that has not always been a characteristic of the left as a whole, but is a feminist value. Yeah, yeah, totally. So how has the pandemic impacted your operations and has it taught you any important lessons along the way? Yeah, this last year has been a wild, wild ride. And I think that it's like hard to... to Almost the way that I want to answer this question is like, I can't say I'm grateful for the pandemic, right? Like that's not okay. But it did open up space for us to, I mean, create like an entire channel of sales that we just would have never had the capacity to explore like the like day to day when we were, you know, open. Yeah. Yeah. I think the move to strong kind of online presence was made possible by the break that was forced on us. You know, the other thing obviously that happened in 2020 was we all had space and time to be pretty deeply engaged with kind of this like moment of rupture taking place in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And Asheville, like lots of places, blew up in a manner that was not really previously imaginable to most of us. So there there was a solid month or two there where we were, you know, checking in on the bookstore to fill orders, but otherwise we're pretty checked out from actually running the business, which was great and was only really possible as a result of, of the pandemic. 
I mean, in some ways, the uprising happened because because so the many pandemic people created space for it to happen. Yeah. Right. So many people unemployed or otherwise having time. Right. Right. Yeah. I was just about to ask each of you, how have your radical commitments helped or hindered Firestorm's mission during 2020? Yeah, I mean, there's both, you know, everything around the up- uprising that Liberty, like, already started to get at. And then, I don't know, to, like, kind of harken back to that, like, culture of care that we've attempted to cultivate within the collective versus, like, traditional businesses. Like, we are we are still closed to the public. We closed our doors on March 16th of 2020. And I think even once this podcast airs, we will still be closed. And you know, I think part of that is, you know, because we created space for all of us to show up, you know, as our whole selves. And, you know, if it were just like me and Liberty, like running, running the bookstore, it's possible we would have opened our doors. Um, I I was ready to open (laughs) months ago. But, you know, being a collective that runs on consensus process, like meeting the needs of everyone that we work with has played a huge role in the fact that, we're still closed. And, you know, in a different space, that might be something like something to be resentful over, like, oh, this person is like blocking our ability to reopen or something like that. But I, I don't think that's how we've approached it collectively. I think we have the relationships necessary to to see each individual's kind of like needs within the cooperative as an opportunity to, you know, explore creative solutions and become stronger, both as a business and as kind of just a team of people. In some ways, I think our radical politics and commitments actually enabled us to stay closed without experiencing too much stress because a few months into the pandemic, someone smashed our front door and stole money from a register and like, I don't know, did a whole bunch of stuff. And we posted it about it on social media and just kind of like talked about you know, the fact that it happened, like why we weren't going to call the cops or work with the cops and, you know, asked folks, you know, that maybe if they needed a book, now would be a great time to grab a book from us. And we sort of went like baby viral. (laughs) We ended up with more orders than we could reasonably fill in our normal, you know, kind of normal queue. That's awesome. It was great. And it set us up to then not have to stress about our finances for the rest of the year because we were kind of floating on this cushion of solidarity that we'd received as a result of what turned out to be an even more widespread hatred of the police than we appreciated (laughs) because literally the next month people were in the streets like burning cop cars and you know smashing up whole city blocks like in protest of the police which we of course didn't know when we kind of made our statement but I think we tapped into feelings that a lot of people were already having about the need to kind of find alternatives to and and move away from reliance on law enforcement to ensure our safety and the safety of spaces and things that we care about. Absolutely. Yeah. I really admire y'all acting as an example in that way, because lots of people for different reasons feel, you know, that it's just not in the cards for them to do that. And I admire your bravery and not getting the cops involved and I think it's just amazing. There's a good lesson for us too. I mean, you know, we we don't approach these situations strictly ideologically. So when something goes down, we don't just immediately default to the correct ideological position, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like debate this stuff. We talk about it. We say, like, you know, we had a conversation where we were like, all right, well, if we don't file a police report, like, we can't get an insurance claim. Like, are we going to forgo that? Like, you know, we like we debated through it, 
I think, you know, having experienced that now, our convictions are even stronger. But, it, you know, it's, it's worth naming that we don't show up to these situations as like perfect anarchists, right? Like, we struggle with it. And hopefully, we come out on the right side of it, yeah. or else we, we don't and we make mistakes and hopefully do better the next time. All right. Well, that's that's still really cool. And I, I love that y'all did that. Um, some bookstores or info shops are known for being stuffy and many even come across as pretentious at worst. However, I can't imagine your operation giving off this sort of vibe. Just speaking with you two now, you don't seem that way. And also, you'll have quite a good reputation as far as that goes online, as far as I can tell. What makes Firestorm unique in sort of like creating this vibe that seems open and welcome and curious as opposed to shut off and jaded and not interested? (laughs) Yeah, that's always been something that was really important to us. Early on in the project, there were some conflict over, over this question of to what extent Firestorm would follow the like, I mean, honestly, kind of like more traditional anarchist model of being a subcultural space or even a bit of a like political clubhouse versus a more public space that was explicitly welcoming to the the widest possible range of participation. And I came in at the sort of extreme kind of like end of this is a public open space that's welcoming. And that was for me based in part on the experience of having been an anarchist who went in anarchist spaces and didn't always feel welcome, you know, or, or has, you know, attended anarchist events where nobody said hello, or like, it just wasn't particularly friendly. You know, we're a project that's situated in the South, which is, of course, a space in which people expect hospitality, and kind of like an openness. Yeah, and I think like going back to one of the things that makes us sort of unique, not being centered on like the university. Um, we have a university, but Asheville is not a university town. And so I think as a collective, we are not particularly intellectual. Like neither Liberty nor I went to college. The majority of us grew up like working class and have always worked. And sometimes I I know, I wouldn't call it pretentious, but I know I feel intimidated by like people who have like gotten to like go off and like see, you know, projects around the world and talk to, you know, people who, I don't know, like have these like vast sort of networks and we're just sort of chipping away, um, like reading kind of trashy sci-fi and yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's maybe what it is. Yeah, the Southern hospitality mixed with just like working class people. That's I think that maybe that's what it is. There's like a class element there. So what's it like for y'all interacting with the with the non-radical public on a regular basis then? I mean, your community is has good sort of internal dynamics, it sounds like. I mean, what is it what is it like for you interacting with someone who just off the street comes into the bookstore and starts looking around? I think it's like broadly normal and fine. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, some of that, Asheville is a town that loves small businesses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. To it, a fault. It, to, to a fault. And on some level, like we, we just walking into our store and like not knowing a whole lot about us. I think we just, we look like just a like kind of weird, but still like legit, just small business. And so I think like most people who are like non-radical, like if they find themselves in our bookstore, there's not a whole lot that would immediately like trigger someone into being like, whoop, not a space for me. 
Yeah. I mean, we get people who come in and like, you know, do like a run through the stacks and then they're like, oh, this is, this is one of those bookstores and then promptly like exit. Um, but, but by and large people are, are like super friendly. Yeah. So I, I think there's, yeah, combo move here of certainly being like a, a fairly professionalized space, which isn't necessarily typical of anarchist projects. Plus, we are a majority white collective, and I think it's impossible to understate the degree to which that shapes, you know, each of our experiences in terms of being perceived as legitimate or, or, or anything like that, or threatening for that matter, right? And this is a town that loves anything weird as long as it's not too threatening. So it's always sort of a, a fine line. I mean, this is yet another city where, you know, everybody drives around with bumper stickers that say, like, keep Asheville weird. I, I understand the same bumper sticker exists in, like, basically every, like, small quirky city, but... Right. Um, yeah, that's kind of part of the culture here for sure. And we've had, you know, our share of like far right fanboys. Um, and and in this case, we're referring to the authoritarian variety with sarcasm around fanboys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, over the last couple of years, we've had a, a pretty like committed kind of like hate crowd that seems to always be on our case. But they're definitely a, a small minority and they tend to be people that are, are somewhat reviled by the community as a whole, which makes it a little more tolerable for us. <laughs> right. Have they messed with y'all? I mean, do you think they're responsible for the break-in or are there protests outside the store? I mean, what's, what do they do? Yeah, not the break-in, but we certainly have over the last couple of years had an increase in the number of times people are hanging around our space, photographing us or other people. Um, a few incidents of like, our personal like vehicles being vandalized. Yeah, there was like a two or three week period where three out of four of us had our cars damaged last year. It, there have occasionally been protests in front of our store, although those seem to be one time we hosted an uh, event that was abortion related. And so we got anti-abortion protesters. That didn't feel so much like it was part of a ongoing concerted effort as just sort of a thing that popped up. Uh, you know, there there has also been something of like an organized ethno-nationalist scene in Western North Carolina over the last few years, which is actually, I mean, certainly there's a long history of, you know, white supremacist organizing in our region, but those types of folks showing up in Asheville, it's actually been quite a few years. I, I wasn't in town, but apparently the community literally ran the KKK out of downtown back in the 90s. So yeah, it has been a situation where we've, we've experienced kind of more activity around our space stickering by proud boys, occasional people coming in and messing with us when we were open, but mostly online trolling, more so than in-person harassment. Yeah. Well, that's annoying. Glad y'all are um, handling it well, and I hope you stay safe with that. Well, there is a funny story about that, actually. Last year, we, we started getting a lot of harassing phone calls, and some of them were actually quite threatening from folks who believed based on some local conspiracy that we were like an Antifa headquarters that was responsible for like coordinating like protests and like, you know, riots or whatever. And I, I've heard actually that other anarchist spaces all had basically the exact same experience. Like, it sounds like if you were an anarchist space and you didn't get labeled the Antifa headquarters by the like local chuds, like you were probably doing something wrong. But we kind of on a lark and as a joke, thought it would be great to set up a voicemail menu system where when you called, you'd get like press one, press two, press three, and just give people their own inbox to like be mad at Antifa in. So Beck actually set up a, a recording in which option five on our phone tree is to leave a strongly worded voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we we didn't think anyone would do it. We just thought it would be funny. Did. <laughs> and so people started pressing five and leaving these absurd rants in this stupid voicemail account that we never listened to instead of actually getting to us, which was just so ideal. <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like the world has to hear those. <laughs> a lot of, of fun voicemails but the well so the antifa ones were were mostly actually quite alarming yeah they're pretty um, disturbing we have we, mm. we do have a good one um where like someone is mad that there's a mess in front of our storefront and so they like left us a voicemail at like i don't know like 70 40, in the morning and they were like you nasty ass bitches like <laughs> oh my god um, Oh, yeah, that person was really over the top. Yeah, but... yeah, that was a good one. That one could definitely... Yeah, yeah that wasn't really Antifa-related, though, so, yeah. So what do you just... You, what do y'all just, like, throw your trash on the sidewalk instead of walking yeah. it to the dumpster, yeah. or...? Yeah, yeah. No, we, like, you know, we clean up when we get to the store, and we don't get to the store before 8 a.m. Sorry. <laughs> That's pretty early. I was going to ask you what time y'all get there. 8 a.m. Is, is... I was just joking on Twitter the other day about how, like... Anarchists aren't morning people. 8 a.m. is uh, is brave. That's a brave time to start. Well, it, it would be a brave time to start, but we are never there at 8 a.m. <laughs> Wait, yeah, back when we served coffee, we were there, you know, we were up and running at 8 a.m. And before that, we actually ran an entire bakery operation, and people were showing up at, like, 5 a.m. for that. Oh, my God. Um, thankfully, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Is, did y'all stop doing that because of the pandemic? Well, we've been on a long trajectory away from food service, but certainly the pandemic has put a real damper on coffee service as a whole. So I think that we'd already basically stopped doing food service, but I, I think even coffee service is probably on pause for a while. Right. So how do the how do the inner workings of the organization actually function? I think most folks are familiar with capitalism. They're familiar with the employer-employee relationship and are very familiar with interacting within that model. How, how, does, how does your cooperative actually function? Break it down for someone who's, who's unfamiliar with the process. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, maybe just big picture, we are both a cooperative and a collective. Mm. Those two things don't have to go together, right? Like, there's plenty of projects that are collectives that aren't organized as, like, business co-ops. There's plenty of co-ops that don't run collectively and have, like, a traditional management structure. So we're, we're both of those things. And for the, us, that means that we are a formal legal business entity in which each member holds one share and those shares are like non-transferable. No one can own more shares than anyone else, right? So there's kind of this like formal structure. And then within that, we are a collective in that we operate horizontally without kind of a seniority and rank. And we make decisions using a formal consensus process, maybe a little less formal than it used to be. We've gotten relaxed. But in terms of the actual organization of labor, we really, I think, try and kind of negotiate a space between having a lot of autonomy and really leaning into a very collaborative work pattern. Some of us prefer to kind of work more in isolation or kind of on our own thing. And some of us would really love it if we all just showed up every day and did everything like sort of like teamwork style. So we do a little of both, but we certainly have a lot of specialization at this point. So like I think you mentioned at the beginning that Beck is our lead buyer. We have one person who really manages like community events, things like that. 
And that, of course, allows for a type of like delegation of work so that we aren't all standing around the printer installing the the new toner cartridge because we do things collectively. (laughs) And then coordination really takes place both informally throughout the day and the week via text message. We rely really heavily on Signal. We used to do everything over email, but it's 2021 and nobody checks their email. So we do that somewhat rarely now. And then we have a general meeting once a week, which is two hours long, which, you know, is if you you hate meetings, I guess that's a downside. But to be honest, our meetings are generally pretty fun and we're getting to talk about things we care about. So it rarely feels like, you know, like a drag or a distraction from what we really want to be doing. So I would say we have a, a pretty like enjoyable meeting culture. Cool. Cool. It's not okay. Maybe some of us enjoy it more than others. Sure. <laughs> and within those meetings, we you know we do things like rotate roles. Uh, we take turns being note keepers, facilitators, timekeepers, things like that. So you know there's there's some structure in place there that kind of supports productive use of time and like positive outcomes. But we we very much do operate by consensus as sort of previously discussed with the whole we're still closed thing. And, you know, we, we don't understand consensus just as a more participatory way of voting. We really try and make a lot of space to work through areas of tension or disagreement and explore kind of root causes. And generally, I think, come out of that process with much stronger decision making and also initiatives that it's possible for everyone to throw their full weight behind as opposed to like, well, we all like had to compromise and go with what Beck said. So we'll kind of heartedly do it which is, I think, the dominant vibe in most workplaces where people have relatively little engagement with the decision-making process, but then are able to exert a lot of friction in the implementation process. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so non-serving media is actually currently in the process of sort of formalizing as a cooperative. So I have actually a lot of questions for you, but I'll, I'll limit them if I can just to move forward. But what's the what's the onboarding process like for Firestorm? Well, it's gotten better. <laughs> There's like a packet of, of things that like include like our operating agreement and an overview of the prospective membership process. And then we also provide, um, usually provide like books that we believe are relevant. To... Makes sense, right? The bookstore gives you some books to yeah, read. Read this. And like we are, we're pretty good about writing up documentation for like important systems and processes. It's kind of piecemeal though. And I think your listeners will appreciate that traditionally those documents have been kind of haphazardly assembled into a document named instead of a handbook by a collective too busy to write one. <laughs> nice. That's, that's the name. Yep. A little Benjamin Tucker reference there for anyone yeah. familiar. Cool. <laughs> so so there are there are materials, but definitely like the bread and butter of our onboarding process is shadowing. When you come in, you are always like working with someone. As a new person. Yeah, as an as a new person. And we found that that is basically the most firestorm especially when you're when you're entering a, a project with a long history and like somewhat broad and complicated systems. And if you're coming in only having experience being an employee with like a really defined set of expectations and like job description, it can be like pretty overwhelming to sort of even begin to wrap your mind around the project holistically. And so we've just found that really nothing helps that process like just being with someone 
who has experience and like understands the ins and outs. Yep. And it sort of goes without saying, but you can't transmit culture through policy and handbook. So, you know, as an organization that I think in a lot of ways is defined by the kind of like culture we've constructed, that's very much a peer-to-peer kind of a learning experience. Right. And in a cooperative, it's up to each individual to steer the culture as opposed to in a capitalist enterprise, say the CEO driving it. Yep, for sure. For sure. So you do more than just sell books. You're also an event space. Y'all have done a lot of events in the past. What's Firestorm's relationship to this type of organizing and what should we expect in the near future as far as events go? Yeah, so that's that's of course changed significantly as a result of the pandemic and is actually still in a process of transformation. But since our beginning in 2008, in a lot of ways, community like programming and content has always been the, the primary focus of Firestorm with the business end of things really in some ways existing to support the community sphere. So that has traditionally looked like a pretty robust events calendar where we have an event basically every day. Certainly pre-pandemic, there were days where we had even two or three events stacked. And those events are mostly community-generated content as opposed to uh, programming that we're developing in-house and then presenting to the community. So that might include everything from book clubs and film screenings to uh, lectures and meetup groups, some of which are standing and occur on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, and some of which are more like one-off kind of initiatives. So when the pandemic started, of course, we closed our doors actually a bit early before it was mandated because we felt that that was the responsible thing to do at the time. And unfortunately, that did mean canceling quite a lot of community content. And over the months that followed, we sort of began to experiment with what does it look like to provide some part of that virtually. Uh, And it, it isn't possible to recreate that much organic content, I think, for us online. So we've moved to a a model of developing a smaller number of events that by and large are more kind of like book themed or certainly feature a lot more authors and are a lot more hands-on on our part in terms of really we're developing the content, perhaps in a partnership sometimes. So over the last six months, you know, one area of success that we've had is we've formed a partnership with PM Press out of Oakland to feature their authors. And those authors do tend to be people whose work we're already following or are really excited about since they're a small like anarchist press. We have some really great events coming up along those lines, which I guess some of them will have already happened by the time that your listeners are plugging in for this conversation. But maybe that's a good time to mention that we post a lot of this content on a YouTube channel. Uh, There's also an older archive of audio that's uh, available on our Patreon. You don't have to be a member of the Patreon to access those files. But yeah, coming up in actually tomorrow, we've got an event that's a tribute to Ben Fletcher, who was a black wobbly labor organizer with a pretty big impact um, at a time when uh, the labor union movement as a whole was quite segregated and racist in the United States. So that is that's a PM partnership event later next month, which will be April for us. <laughs> Sorry, time confusion. We've got a really awesome event with a number of contributors to a book titled uh, Mending the World as Jewish Anarchists by Cindy, yeah, Melstein. 
Yeah. And that book conversation will be actually much broader than the book itself. We're kind of bringing together a number of local community members with some contributors to the book from Atlanta and Cindy, who we we love and have actually hosted in the past for events. So I think that'll be a really great conversation that people can at least jump in on retroactively from our YouTube account if they missed it. And then one that I think is, is happening actually after this will air, we'll be hosting Gabriel Kun for an event on indigenous resistance in Europe's far north on May 8th. And that is also a PM Press partnership event that kind of goes along with a book, Liberating Stop Me, which was published last year. So other than your collaborations with PM Press, I know you have some history at C4SS and other organizations. How do you relate to other anarchist organizations or anti-authoritarian movements and communities that are in existence? Yeah, for sure. So I would say our relationships are more informal than formal. You know, we're not part of any national organizing structure or federation, although we maybe wish that something cool like that existed that wasn't like a creepy platformist thing. But, you know, individually, a lot of us bring connections. I'm part of the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking crew that organizes out of the Northeast. And we've, in the last couple of years, worked to try and establish a radical book spaces network to bring together and network a number of projects kind of with some similar qualities to Firestorm in terms of being anarchist or, or other like revolutionary spaces that center books, either as like lending libraries, reading rooms or bookstores. Yeah, in terms of our relationship with radical publishers, you know, I think we buy from and rep the work of a lot of small presses. Some of our best-selling books come from publishers like Contagion, who are way too small to get representation in a lot of other bookstores. You mentioned the PM Press event series. We also work pretty closely with AK Press, also out of California. And Crime Think is actually kind of, I think, started in North Carolina. Little known fact, Crime Think's origin story in North Carolina. And we actually have like a pretty great relationship with folks doing kind of like the Crime Think project. Beck and I have actually been doing some volunteer bookkeeping consultation for them as they transition their internal structure. And last year, we helped with funding for a reprint of the To Change Everything pamphlet, which is pretty ubiquitous. You've probably seen it before, but it's, you know, like a a relatively short propaganda tract that Crime Think distributes. I think it's in quite a few different languages, but this was the English language reprint. And we add that into people's first orders from us. Yeah, we we distribute that along with a lot of other free zines and stickers um, when people place orders. I said at the beginning that I, as an individual, certainly was pretty impacted by some of the work coming out of C4SS back in the the mid-aughts. And uh, we've kind of continued to uh, take any opportunity possible to host C4SS authors or contributors. We stock most of the C4SS catalog in terms of like books and other materials. And actually, and and really beautifully, when we were uh, moving into our current space and doing crowdfunding back in 2015, C4SS folks came together and made like a pretty substantial contribution, one of the biggest donations that we got towards opening the doors in our new location. So definitely always grateful to the great folks at C4SS for supporting us and, and looking for opportunities to collaborate. So just generally speaking, what do you think has been the most rewarding and conversely the most challenging aspects of engaging with Firestorm Books as a project? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we're a collective full of people who, even if we like didn't 
come to Firestorm this way, we are now at least like ruined for working in like traditional workspaces. <laughs> um, I know for me, I have historically had a lot of trouble holding down jobs long term because I would just get really bored and frustrated. And there's like something about Firestorm's like combo of like, well, honestly, kind of constant crisis um, <laughs> that like that really gets the juices flowing, and that it's hard to. Uh, you you have a stake in its survival. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, and and also like just the I guess like the the work culture, just like I think we all get to experience a kind of endless flexibility and ability to sort of focus in on whatever piece of the project is like most interesting to us in that moment. Yep. Yeah. I think for me, like Firestorm has sort of this endless creative outlet is, is huge. The variety of the work and the sense of ownership over, you know, whatever, whatever we engineer. I think it's also worth naming that I think for many folks in our project, both now and in the past, perhaps the most appealing thing has been that we're a workspace in which a lot of the kind of like norms around like productivity culture and viewing people kind of very narrowly as kind of whatever their role within the the enterprise is, is sort of broken down. So I think being a workplace that centers care and treats people as really human is also or at a least pretty struggles to do so. Struggles to do so. We don't always get anything right, but, but we work towards it. I think in some ways, like as far as the challenges go, I know for me, like I think as someone prone to perfectionism, caring so deeply about the work and feeling like such a sense of ownership over it, I think can really impact how I show up to the project. And, and I think we've all like struggled with perfectionism and like workaholism. I think that that would probably, well, I don't know. I was definitely not a workaholic before I like started working at Firestorm. It is a thing that I think we have to collectively push back on yeah. like regularly because it's work that we care about. And it's easy to just get kind of sucked further and further into it. Yeah. Um, I think a, a challenge kind of to kind of keep naming things that are can be tough is that Firestorm does negotiate this tension between its values, our values, and kind of the capitalist market that we're attempting to operate in. I do believe that it's possible for libertarian, anti-capitalist folks to directly confront and, and out-compete within the market. But I also think that the reality a lot of times is that operating under capitalism, it can really challenge us in terms of showing up and making the decisions that actually align with our goals and values as anarchists. I mean, I think there's like the human challenges where like we are like well known as a like public, very laid back space that hates the cops. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is like, it's like such a sticky thing to like address with nuance, I think, on a podcast that will be public. <laughs> <clears throat> right. But essentially, I think we have we have a challenge around being a space in which people a small part, this is, it's the, right, like, this is the, like, challenge of maintaining a commons, right? Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, like, like, the challenges that we face sometimes are, like, what is it like to try and maintain a space that is understood on some level as the commons, but in a context where the commons as a whole is so dramatically depleted within our community that there's this extremely oversized need for access to space and resources that one small cooperative bookstore is just incapable of actually rising to the occasion and meeting. And that includes everything from safe places for people to sleep at night to places for people who are, you know, uh, addicted 
to drug use to like access somewhere where they can safely use and be off the street. We aren't a space that can be a safer injection site. We recognize the need for that to exist, but we are kind of caught in this tension of recognizing the need for a lot of community resources that don't exist and wanting to be as many things as possible to people, but having to maintain boundaries as well. We're in a part of town where weirdly, like we're on this corridor of kind of commercial residential mix and there's no parks. There's just like no public space. So there's like a large population of folks who are living on the streets and there's just, there's like kind of just nowhere you can be. So that puts a lot of pressure on the small number of spaces that are friendly and open. You know, we try and navigate that with integrity and compassion and also get overwhelmed. So towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people, ideas, or items that I give my guests one minute or less to respond to. Are y'all down to do that? Yeah, we were admittedly terrified of this section. (laughs) We're like, oh no, we're going to do this. (laughs) All right. The first one is Amazon. All right. Yeah. Okay. Minute or less. Um, (laughs) Everybody knows Amazon. It's a case study in, in Monopoly. You might think of Amazon as sort of the standard oil of book publishing. You know, our understanding is that Amazon sells about 42% of physical books and actually 75% of all physical books sold online, which is just incredible. And that position within the market, of course, has given Amazon the ability to dramatically reduce the level of freedom available to readers and authors alike. Cory Doctorow has written really compellingly about this, if people are familiar with Doctorow's work. And additionally, Amazon like is able to use that position in the market to conspire with publishers to inflate prices. So, you know, the critical take on Amazon from small bookstores, of course, is very strong. <laughs> additionally, it's worth noting that right now, and I guess this will be settled by the time people are listening to this podcast, but there is a union struggle and vote taking place in Besmer, Alabama. And we participated in a book worker day of solidarity with labor organizers in the ground on the ground in Alabama last week. Starbucks. <laughs> when I was like a baby radical coming up in the anti like globalist movement, Starbucks was basically the like the the stand in for everything evil in the world, um, which is pretty funny to me because nowadays nobody really cares about Starbucks. But I remember Starbucks being kind of like the the corporate symbol that was always kind of uh, being used or, or attacked by the left. Starbucks is ubiquitous. Their coffee is pretty gross, in my opinion. And there was a Starbucks that opened about a mile from our store a couple of years ago. And we were not particularly stressed about it because it felt like it was hitting such a different niche. Yeah, Starbucks, it's out there. I don't know. <laughs> it, it seems like less evil than it did when I was like 19. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it's probably just like the the spectacle surrounding it is... Exactly, yeah. The, st- the spectacle is reduced yeah. and we have companies like Amazon now, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, Volturing Declare. Cool, yeah. Let's see, Volturing Declare was uh, a free thinker who was famously radicalized by the events of the Haymarket Affair and embraced an individualist anarchism and ultimately went on to like kind of champion anarchism without adjectives, which is the kind of tendency that I guess rejects a sectarian focus on exactly what type of economic and and political order will exist sort of after the, the revolution and instead embraces kind of an ecumenical big tent approach to liberatory politics. 
I think Voltaire and Declare's work stands up particularly well in like our contemporary context. Their writing, which was initially all delivered as speeches, is very like crisp and contemporary sounding. And it actually like hits a lot of topics that I think were way ahead of their time. Voltaire and Declare's writing, very relevant to folks interested in queer liberation. For instance, her piece, uh, Those Who Marry Do Ill, which really, I think, foreshadowed a lot of the radical queer arguments against gay marriage that took place in the aughts and more recently. And a cool story, when we opened in our new location, we approached anarchist illustrator Clifford Harper, who is in the UK, about uh, doing a, an illustration of Voltaire Declare because we found that there, there wasn't a lot of art depicting Voltaire. And he did a really beautiful linoleum cut illustration of Voltaire that now is actually all over the internet, but was originally done for our co-op. And we really love it. Cool, cool. All right, uh, next item, dystopia. Dystopia. Yeah, I think as a collective, we really love dystopias and we live in a dystopia. Um, <laughs> I think the thing about fiction that I find is that fiction like kind of helps you, it, like makes it safer for you to sort of access emotions about, you know, things that you're experiencing, but in like a, a safer, more removed way. Gosh, I like, I always think about when the pandemic first hit and we just all sort of like, we just didn't know what to do. We just kept showing up to work and like, I guess, like figuring it out. And it made me think of probably my favorite dystopia, um, Severance by Ling Ma, which is like a, a millennial dark satire about a plague in like the like crumbling capitalist hellscape aka uh, New York City. Um, and part of the book was that this fever was running through New York City and she just kept showing up to her office job every day because she didn't know what else to do. And there was, I don't know, something like both horrifying and comforting about like watching that sort of come to life in my own experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, right. Okay, so last item on the list. I'm going to say this a little differently because I think it's it's a little spicier. <laughs> police reform. Oh. oh, interesting that police reform is spicier than police abolition. I like, I like that in 2021. Yeah, so police reform, of course, is a topic that comes up perennially. It's constantly marched out by the defenders of the police as a counterpoint to police abolition. Over the summer, we saw a little bit of a tug of war around slogans like defund the police, which some people insisted meant that we would still have police, but they would like, I don't know, have less money or something. And other people articulated a position of opposition to the very like existence of police using the slogan. This was a discursive battle that we found ourselves in the middle of in our own community. As a cooperative, we have kind of a, a long policy of, of not calling the police for things. And it does feel like, to some extent, what was previously maybe uh, a bit of an edge case or like niche political view has really entered the mainstream in terms of conversation about over-reliance on policing. And of course, the distinctively white supremacist role of police as an institution. Uh, and I think I'd be like remiss if I didn't mention that like right now, there is a police abolitionist text titled We Do This Till We Free Us by Mariam Kaba, which cracked the New York Times bestseller list. And I think that really speaks to the fact that here we are six months after kind of the fires 
died down and people are still really hungry for an exploration of um, the abolitionist position. And Miriam Cobb is a great person to get into some of these ideas with. She's a long-standing community activist who also identifies as an anarchist, uh, a Black anarchist, and I think just really brings so much wisdom. So would definitely recommend Miriam Cabba's work. Very cool. All right. So moving forward a little bit, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a few listener questions, and then we can move to the actual end of our conversation, okay? Cool. So the first one is not unique to Firestorm. It's one that we ask almost on every episode, but is related to Firestorm more perhaps than other guests in the past, which is how can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? I guess I just want to say this question got so much play in our prep for this interview. <laughs> it's a fun question. So so this I think this question is good for a lot of reasons in that it is like relatively innocuous and avoids asking the like typical who will build the roads question, but like fundamentally hits at like questions of like, how is society organized? And like, what's the role of like luxury goods? So yeah, this is a cool question. I have to admit, though, that when I first heard the question, my immediate response was like, LOL, be ready to attend infinite meetings about who didn't <laughs> properly clean the community espresso machine wand um, in, in my future utopia. But, but that's a joke. Um, <laughs> and in, in fact, I don't want to go to those meetings any more than you do. So I don't know. Having settled into this question a little more, I think like the first thing that I would say is that I just categorically reject the idea of one utopia. So, you know, I, I like that this is framed as your imagined utopia. And certainly in the future that I want to live in, there's more than one utopia, sort of a world of many worlds to like quote the Zapatistas. So my feeling about this is, you know, we should let a million espresso machine flowers bloom and that literally however you want to get your espresso product that doesn't involve the enslavement of humans or other animals should be fair game in a, in a utopia. I do think though that like to really drill in on cappuccino, and I say this as a former barista, you really have to decide whether or not in our utopia we're approaching cappuccino as a craft or as a commodity. Mm -hmm. So if we are approaching it as a commodity, then it's just essentially the same as any other question of how do we distribute resources? You know, like, if this is just about making an adequate cappuccino, then perhaps we're looking at a future in which it is automated. Perhaps if it's, you know, something that's still being made by hand, we're looking at a network of producer cooperatives, things like this. I know for sure that in no utopian future that I can vision, would people be working for tips for cranky customers who get to determine whether or not you can afford to pay your rent at the end of the month. And on the flip side, I think like the idea of cappuccino as craft is very compelling, right? Which puts this more in the territory of who will play violin in the utopia, right? And I think then it becomes like, well, I would like to imagine a utopia in which we all have an enormous amount of leisure time and it is possible to develop skills and artistry according to our passions. And I think for some people, making really incredible coffee drinks and sharing them with friends might fall pretty squarely into that same space as you know, become an excellent painter or like some other craft-based skill. So if those are my initial thoughts on the cappuccino question. <laughs> but for the love of the bean, we move forward. <laughs> I do think that it's possible that, that we may need to consider whether or not there are other espresso-based beverages that better fit into, our, into some of our utopias. Like, for instance, I, I think, you know, the cortado is really underappreciated and is honestly much easier to create. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. 
Yeah, it's, it has less milk. <laughs> that was such a good answer, though. Thank you. That was so interesting. I love that response. Classically, I will answer your question by posing more questions. <laughs> I love it. Second listener question is, what's your best book recommendations for people with liberatory politics by actual people from the Southeast? Yeah, as a collective, actually, two, one, two years ago, we read Dixie Be Damned by Neil Shirley and Sarah Lee Stafford. Mm, um, and I, I think a number of us had already read it, but the experience of reading it as a collective and, and talking about it as a collective was really amazing. But it's, it's like a collection of, I guess it started out as a series of zines mm-hmm. focusing in on like insurrectionary moments in Southern history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really, a really great resource. Incredible history that isn't really covered by any other works that I know of. Also got a name more recently as Black as Resistance by William C. Anderson and Zoe uh, Samudzi. This is a really great starting point for anyone that is interested in kind of exploring Black anarchism or kind of like uh, the intersections of Blackness, particularly in a U.S. context with kind of anarchic liberatory politics. Cool. Super highly recommended. The author's are out of Atlanta, so quite close to us, and have spoken at our store as well. So maybe honorable mention here, what we could throw out, what you're getting wrong about Appalachia by Elizabeth Pat. you know, not an anarchist. Kate. Is it Kate? It's Kate. I right. thought we decided it was. The joke was it's up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Well, your, your, uh, your, re- your listeners will have to determine for themselves how <laughs> Elizabeth's last name is pronounced. Elizabeth is not an anarchist. I think they're a social democrat. Um, but they have written an incredibly great rejoinder to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Highly worth reading, both for its coverage, short coverage of Appalachian history and also exploration of queerness and non-white and immigrant experiences in Appalachia. And then one other maybe that I would name, partly just because I adore the people who put it together, Queer and Trans Voices Achieving uh, Liberation Through Consistent Anti-Oppression by Julia Feliz and Zane McNeil. McNeil's also currently working on uh, a collection through PM Press. I don't know when it's due out or what stage it's in, but it's a collected work by queer anarchists and radicals based in the South that'll be kind of sort of a bit of an oral history project as I understand it. So I'm really excited about that one. Very cool. So yeah, this transitions smoothly into the next listener question. Zines, are they an irrelevant relic of ancient history and a waste of paper or a charming and useful way to do propaganda? Charming and useful? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess, as mentioned before, we provide free zines with most of our orders. So as a collective, we, we love the zine. And put like a lot of collective effort into like choosing like which scenes were the ones that we were sending out as like free perks. But then on top of that, we also like sell an enormous number of zines out of our top selling anarchist title from the last year is What About the Rapist? Anarchist Approaches to Crime and Justice. Um, Which is a pretty beefy zine to be fair. It is very beefy. It's like 80 pages. It could be a small book. (laughs) Yeah, I think the thing to say about zines, in addition to all that, is just that they're very accessible. And a lot of people, you know, if if somebody walks in and they're like, I want to read the bread book, then I'm like, sure, read the bread book. Like, you know, somebody has decided that they want to, like, undertake sort of a massive project of self-education. Cool. You do you, babe. You do you. Yeah. But most people, like, who we might approach in our day-to-day lives are not prepared to sign up for that level of homework. And we found that 
folks who maybe are somewhat curious about anarchism, but not like committed to doing like a full research project are much more likely to take on and, and read a zine. It's just, you no. Know, it's a very accessible format. And for that reason alone, I love it. It's also so like lovely to have something that can be, you know, so easily created in a, in a decentralized way, especially in an era where companies like Amazon really have such a stranglehold on the publishing industry. I think the ability to self-publish online, but also in print remain just extremely crucial. I also feel like in a lot of ways, means almost pose more questions than answers in a way that like really invites like engagement with friends and community. I know more so than I when I read a book, like when I read like a really provocative essay, like I'm much more inclined to like make somebody else read it and and then talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, it feels like zines are having a little bit of a comeback. Maybe five years ago, I remember visiting other anarchist and rad spaces and realizing that like what used to be a zine section had been like eliminated or downsized to the point where it was like kind of like a little dusty rack in a corner. But it does feel like what's happened perhaps is that there's been, I think maybe the the zine culture that we had in the 90s and aughts doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. but there's a, a kind of new zine culture, which is perhaps a, a little like more oriented towards like higher production value, where people are now publishing zines and pamphlets that are really pretty slick, but that technology and and that printing process has become so easy to access that I feel like there are a lot of folks who are kind of coming back to the zine as a format that feels valuable. Yeah, I feel like this could be the anarchist version of um, reject modernity, embrace tradition. (laughs) Yes, yeah, perhaps so. So the second to last listener question is, in your opinion, what role can or does fiction play in politics and liberation? The experience that this brings up for me is Actually, long before I worked at Firestorm, I attended an event that Margaret Kiljoy was putting on about like imagining utopias. And I was like sitting in this like the back room of Firestorm and just over and over, everyone kept bringing up little like pieces and ideas from Women on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. And it was like so clear that like what everyone was bringing was like so profoundly steeped in this like utopia that had been presented in this book that I like immediately left the meeting and bought a copy and read it and think about it like basically every day. (laughs) Yeah, that book is really impactful explication, if not, I mean, certainly somewhat didactic, but uh, I kind of liked that. Yeah, (laughs) well worth reading. And I think uh, I think Carson mentioned it when y'all talked about fiction in your recent interview. I really did appreciate some of the things that Kevin Carson said about fiction in that interview. I think y'all talked somewhat extensively about the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. And, you know, I, I liked how Carson highlighted as a reader and as a as an anarchist, engaging with books like that and really looking at them as constructions of the world building, the hypothetical, the kind of like what, you know, where did, where did the cappuccinos come from? And I think that that is one of the best things about speculative fiction, sci-fi and fantasy. So a, a concept that we kind of play with a lot is this idea of visionary fiction, which comes to us by way of Walida Amarishi, who we actually hosted a few years ago for an event. Walida is the author of a few books, including a collection called Octavia's Brood, which is a short story collection by radical authors of fiction. And Walida has really, I think, done a lot to kind of like popularize and possibly even coin the term visionary fiction, which we use as part of 
an event series we do called the Visionary Readers Group, which is an ongoing event series where each round takes a work of fiction and a work of theory and puts them into conversation together in essentially a book club format, which I, I think is a really cool way to read fiction is to like basically like think about how the fiction speaks to and relates to more explicitly works of political theory. But Walida has, you know, kind of said on a number of occasions, and I think this is right, that you can't really build something if you can't imagine it. And we live in a world in which all of these dominant systems have really just told us since birth that radical change simply isn't possible. The very first step towards transforming the world around us is breaking open our imaginations and being able to think outside of what was handed to us. And, and I think for that, there's almost no better format than fiction. So we, we definitely love fiction. And in particular, like the kind of like more speculative variety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this last listener question might not be relevant because I know that you said that you're not serving food anymore or moving away from that at least. But this listener asks, most, if not all, of the food you have available is vegan, which can be controversial even among radicals. What went into that decision and why is providing explicitly vegan options important for you? Yeah, so it's true that we're not doing food service anymore, but we still understand the space as a vegetarian space. And, you know, even after we stopped serving food, there were still like lots of occasions where, you know, events and groups had food in the space. That's true. I feel like I would have pushed back on this idea of it being controversial if we hadn't just had yeah. like a half dozen people attacking us on TikTok over the fact that they can't bring barbecue into our bookstore. We had a viral post on TikTok like a week or two ago, and there was a very positive response overall, but there, there was also a, a smaller number of people who took great offense that there was a sign on our door that asked people not to bring meat into the store. <laughs> in real life, we have never had so many people so upset with us because they couldn't, like, I don't know, eat a ham sandwich in the bookstore. I don't even understand <laughs> why this is, like, a, a form of repression. That's one of the first things I check for when I ate meat was, like, is this a meat-friendly place? You know, like, if I can't bring my... my <laughs> <laughs> if I can't bring my brisket into the bookstore, I don't want to have anything to do with it. If I can't carve a ham in the bookstore, why would I come into your, you know, if I, if I this is the, it's the, like the, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, but for meat eating. I mean, so maybe though to provide a more serious answer to this question. And I, I do think that ultimately, like, if this is a topic that you want to explore, you would do well to perhaps have somebody on the show who really can talk about like the animal liberationist project. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the person who can articulate that work uh, the best, but I will say that I think there is some crucial overlap between a critical examination of the way in which non-human animals and humans are kind of uh, oppressed within our society. And the overwhelming evidence at this point points towards something that I think was already knowable through pure observation, which is that non-human animals have extremely rich emotional lives and complex social relationships. And within that context, I think that it is just no longer really ethically tenable to entirely ignore the question of how animals should be treated and to what extent it's appropriate to keep animals in a form of captivity or slavery 
or to use their body parts for consumption. And so, I, you know, for us, veganism has never primarily been about diet. I know that I personally literally never want to, to try and shame anyone or police anyone's body. That's, uh, you know, kind of a, a grotesque practice that unfortunately has been quite common among, among vegans at times. Certainly not where I'm coming from. I'm much more interested in the larger project of animal liberation. And particularly, I think, looking at the way in which systems of human oppression are really built on a foundation of speciesism. There's some great literature on this if people are interested. But suffice to say that there is a degree to which I think the idea of supremacy itself is really couched on the supremacy of the white male human. And as a result, many different types of oppression um, and denigration of humans often overlap with, with speciesism in terms of attempting to essentially establish who in society is closest to bestiality, right? And so, of course, this language is quite common in societies that denigrate folks uh, with disabilities or um, women, um, racial minorities, things like that. And I guess at the end of the day, we have the option of kind of attempting to extricate each kind of like mi minoritized group within society from proximity to animalhood or we can acknowledge that as humans, we all in fact are animals and have some proximity to non-human animals. And that by ultimately going and kind of like digging up and challenging some of those assumptions about non-human animals, we kind of pave the way to address a lot of these other systems of violence and oppression that we're against as anarchists. Right. So I know I said that we are going to go directly to the outro after the listener questions, but I actually have one more question to sort of sum up a lot of what we've discussed, if you don't mind. So we've talked so much about Firestorm. What does success look like for you? What's the ultimate goal, the ultimate vision that you see Firestorm fulfilling? And yeah, what, is, what does success look like for you? Yeah. So I guess this is like a multi-parter probably, and maybe like one of the first things being, it would be really nice if we were all making a livable wage. <laughs> I think that would feel like success. We've been working towards that since 2008. <laughs> it's, it's fair to say that we don't pay ourselves super well, although we pay ourselves much better than we used to. It's true. And then I think beyond just, what's our mission statement? Let me pull it up. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So Firestorm's mission is to demonstrate the feasibility and desirability of a workplace based on free cooperation. We seek to sustain and nourish our collective through fulfilling work, personal empowerment, and equitable compensation while providing a hub for anarchist thought and culture in Western North Carolina. So I think achieving that is a form of success. And then additionally, and this kind of shows up in other places where, you know, we're, we aren't a, a 501c3 nonprofit, um, but we are committed to reinvesting our profits back into the community. And so I, I know success for me would definitely, you know, look like having capacity both in terms of mentoring and also like being able to financially assist with other radical grassroots projects locally. Yeah. And this is something we talk about a lot because we do understand that, you know, this is something that it's not like we become successful and then we figure out how to do these things. You know, this is something that we figure out as we are on our path towards what feels like success. So we're, we're constantly looking at our operations and asking questions about, you know, how could we give more back to folks doing work in the community that feels like it's an affinity with our vision or that, that feels important for our community. Beautiful. So where can folks go to support you then? Y'all are interested in, in giving back to the community. How can the community support you in your work? 
I guess the obvious answer is that if you're listening to this show and you like to read books, keep keep us in mind as a, we can be your local anarchist bookstore if you don't have one. So our website is firestorm.coop. In case that trips anyone up, it's .coop, short for cooperative, not .com. We also have a Patreon, which I think we may have mentioned at some point. We started that a number of years ago to kind of help underwrite some of the costs associated with like the unmonetized things that we do, particularly kind of like grassroots organizing and community events. So there's some great perks on that. And I think we're actually about to relaunch our Patreon with a little bit of a change up that'll be exciting, including like some kind of like zine a month, book a month type tier levels. So check that out. So what resources should folks utilize in order to learn more about the topics that each of you are passionate about? Cool. I think we weren't entirely sure what were the things that we were passionate about when we were, we were thinking, spreadsheets. Right. Now. <laughs> My favorite book on, on doing so. Okay. So in actuality, if people are excited about cooperatives and worker co-ops in particular, I think a great place to start looking for information and resources would be the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, of which we're a part. It's a really awesome federation that does a ton of great work around education and support. So the website for that is US Worker. Oh, it's yeah, it's usworker.coop. So check that out. Because we we did sort of anticipate the possibility that the vegan stuff would come up, it occurred to me that it might be worth mentioning specifically that if people are interested in exploring like a kind of like an intersectional animal liberationist politics that isn't just kind of liberalism. They might want to check out books from sanctuary publishers. They're really great. And basically everything they publish is good. Also, Lantern Books puts out a lot of good stuff. Beyond what you just mentioned, do you have any specific advice to others who are looking to start similar endeavors? Well, so my my answer to this is usually don't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but specifically by that, I mean attempting to like open a bookstore. I think it's possible that the like the era of like anarchist bookstores as like workable economic models might have sort of uh, come to a close. So I would encourage people to think outside the box and not just attempt to replicate something they saw in another community. Certainly, if we were starting over again, I don't know that I would try and do exactly what we're doing from scratch. And the other thing I would say is just like, people should do a lot more planning than they think they need to do. We, we opened fires from very quickly with this idea that we would just sort of bootstrap everything. And in retrospect, it turns out that that wasn't so great. And it it took us a really long time to like ramp up to the point where we had even like a a moderate level of success in terms of being able to kind of sustain the work that we were doing financially. Yeah, like 13 years down the road, I think it's only been like in the last like year or two that we've started to feel like we weren't going to close at any moment. Yeah, yeah. And so like basically spending like 10 or 11 years in a constant state of like, maybe we'll close, maybe we'll close, like, uh, is just, it's very draining. And it certainly contributed to the fact that there's only one of us still here who was around in 2008. So as much as financial resources are often a barrier to starting a co-op, anything that people can do to build up the kind of the capital necessary in order to have a successful launch, it's worth putting the time in for that. Cool. Thank you all so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I think everyone is going to enjoy this. And yeah, just thank you for for taking time out of y'all's day to to join me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. There it is, folks. 
hope everyone enjoyed this installment of the show. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out our full catalog at nonservianmedia.com or at youtube.com slash nonservianmedia. And make sure to subscribe to receive notifications each time we release a new episode. If you're interested in seeing this project continue, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviamedia. And if you can't contribute financially, you can help us out simply by liking and sharing this episode. As usual, shout out to our existing patrons. Your support helps us reach a larger audience and helps keep this project going. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.